You're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Episode 9 starts now. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Justin Connors here, and I'm here with Jamie. How's it going, Jamie? Good evening. <laughs> Good evening. <laughs> uh, tonight, we uh, Jamie's going to introduce, but let's just say we're going to get a little bit dangerous. <laughs> ja- <laughs> Jamie, why don't you introduce our guest? <laughs> let's get dangerous. That was yeah, exactly. Awful. That was awful, and I hope Justin edits that out. Yeah, so this week we have an amazing guest. Tad Stones is joining us, um, and we're just thrilled to have him. Tad, if you are unfamiliar, um, you're definitely familiar with his work, if not his name. Uh, He is the creator of Darkwing Duck um, and had a heavy role in the development and creation and, and work on a lot of the Disney afternoon shows. So he was involved with rescue Rangers. He was involved a little bit with DuckTales. Um, and then he went over and he was really involved with the Aladdin television show in Hercules. Um, and he's actually directed uh, a couple of the direct video sequels. Um, he's done the Aladdin sequels. He did the Atlanta sequels. He's actually d- he's ed- um, directed the Hellboy animated films with Mike Mignola. Um, and he has a history of 30 years with Disney and the Disney company, um, going all the way back to the nine old men. Um, and it's, it's just fascinating. And we're just going to get right into it. And I do love that, you know, in, in, in the midst of all that stuff there, you've made room for bone, which I just adore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's just like when I moved in, this place was all solid bookshelves. I had to take out shelves so I could hang stuff on the wall. Oh, wow. uh, but aside from I could get rid of all the DVDs, I suppose, you know, these are the comics like I saved and the stuff. I just I have my... I mean, I I was collecting when Marvel started up, so I had a lot of those early Marvel stuff uh, comics. So I just last year put them in consignment at a comic shop um, to finally get rid of them. But I always saved, you know. For me, it's the stories. It's not literally the the pulp. Right. So uh, things like when Bone had their collection all in one piece, that's fantastic. Oh yeah, you know the various things I have and all the Hellboy stuff, of course, over there. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Bone is just such a neat blend that I have. Uh, I have a project I'd like to do, you know, right now. It's over at Amazon, but it has that same kind of mix of. No, this is really funny. Uh, in fact, it would be more so. But oh, there's a real story here. You know, it's that mixture yeah. of comedy adventure I always wanted to do. That's we what we did in the Disney afternoon. And now I'd love a chance to kind of escalate in both directions. Yeah. And Bone did fun. that, you know, way ahead of anybody else. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, the thing that I love about Bone, we'll get into get into it in a second, but I, I need to geek out about Bone just because I love it so much. And I've actually met Jeff Smith. He's one of the sweetest guys mm-hmm. um, ever. My daughter actually interviewed him. Um, and, uh, so he's just one of the greatest guys. And the, the, the great thing about bone is that it starts off, like you were saying, and just like this, you just think it's just this funny little Pogo esque comic yeah. strip. And then it just, it develops into something that's just so much more. Um, yeah. So anyway, anyway, I had to geek out about that for a second. That's okay. <laughs> I was actually called in the, I mean, I, I got the Hellboy job in a, in a lot of different ways, but one of the things I happened to be at 
I went to Cartoon Network to interview about possibly directing Bone because uh, the executive at the time went to Jeff Smith and just said, I love this thing. And everybody else had talked to him about doing a Bone movie. But his feeling was <clears throat> when Jeff said, well, you know, you always have to figure out, well, what part of the Bone story do you do in a movie? And his response, the executive's response was, why don't we do it all? In other words, make these a series of miniseries, oh, yeah. which is real attractive to Jeff. Obviously not attractive enough for it to ever have happened because this is back in I don't know, 2005 or 2006. Um, but anyway, I went in to interview not with that executive, but with because that guy was back in Atlanta, but uh, with the executive out here who's now running Warner Brothers, uh, Sam Register. Um, and you know, he was supposed to meet with a bunch of people as possible directors, but you know, as he asked me questions, I'm thinking to myself, there's nothing I'm saying that's going to get me this job. I mean, it's not, and it's not even that a director is expected to draw or something. Although guys who are very visual, they could come in and say, this is my take. But with bone, it's like, I, I want it to be that. Yeah. But uh, the junior executive who I knew uh, kind of said, well, you know, Tad's work, you know, worked with Mike Mignola on on uh, his Atlantis series and then actually have done some Hellboy scripts. And, I, and Sam, like, perked <laughs> up because Hellboy was his thing. Yeah. And he said, you shouldn't be doing that. I mean, you'd be great for Bone. I'm sure you'd be great, but we should get you on Hellboy and all that. And I already knew a lot of what was going on. Um and Sam wanted to make it look just like the page. And I said, well, the deal is that it can't look that way because yeah. you can't distinguish what's what came from the comic, just in terms of toys, let's say. You couldn't distinguish what's from the comic and what's from the animated show if everything looks the same. So they had to you know, change the design style. But it actually got me in Sam's head and Cartoon Network's on their list of guys who could do Hellboy. And when that project finally came together... It's like Mike knew me, Guillermo del Toro knew me, uh, <laughs> Cartoon Network knew me. So the only pretty people who didn't knew me were the guys who actually had the rights to do the movie. So they were going like, who, who is this guy? You know? So, But it worked out. We got to at least do two and wrote a script for a third, and then the company was sold. What can I say? Yeah. That actually, since we're talking about it, we might as well continue. That was I was going to get to that a little bit later. But, I mean, I'm a, I'm a really big Hellboy fan, and uh, – um, so what really impressed me about those two animated movies was not how true they were, not only to the films, but also to Mike's comics. Um, and I mean, they were just there. I mean, getting the voice cast, I think, was was sort of a, a coup. I mean, was that always in the cards? Like, did you always they know that always, you have well, to get the same voices? A lot of that cast, especially like Ron Perlman, he does animation voices all the time. Yeah. Now, Selma Blair did not, but she loves it. And actually, she would love to do like a goofy voice. You yeah. Know? And I was using her as, you know, kind of her straight. Uh, but my goal was to capture Mike's comics, even yeah. though I couldn't do it visually per se. Um, the, uh, you know, I wanted to get his unique storytelling because to me that was Hellboy. The, the biggest change or the difference of how I looked at Hellboy and how Guillermo portrayed him is Guillermo kind of said, he's kind of this 
not that he literally described him this way, but he's almost played as a teenager, kind of a hormonal teenager who's still, you know, uneasy around girls. Whereas I thought of Hellboy is, no, he's the rock. If you're in the BPRD, you want to be on his team because those guys tend to come back alive, you know, Mm -hmm. is that kind of thing. Um, So he was a much more mature kind of character. And then I just wanted to tell, you know, spooky stories in that, in Mike's vein. So I don't know if it was the most commercial move I could have made, but um, my, and I'm always hard on my own stuff, but the first movie sort of storms was like Mike's short stories. So the connecting matter that we put together ultimately wasn't strong enough or moody enough, but the little pieces I'm very proud of, especially we did the, the heads um, Japanese story that Mike had done. And it's, use the actual frames of his comics in there um and then the kappa story which was all a unique a move thing that we put together ourselves of just this fight with this water demon up and down a river you know i just yeah. love that stuff in the opening sequence with the giant bat and all of that um it was just like no this is what i wanted to do and then the second movie was more hellboy's central european origins of the vampires and and uh there i got ambitious and told part of the story in reverse you know, <laughs> with flashbacks of uh, the professor and uh there i thought the overall story you know was better but i was still those projects overlapped so we had no time when i got on the project three days after i was there the head of production and i was at a new studio so i didn't I didn't feel confident enough to like challenge things, but the head of production came in and said, Oh, we have to take uh, I forget how many weeks off of your script. Um, uh, but, or schedule. It's like the script schedule for the story that we haven't even discussed. <laughs> that script schedule. Um, but we've really learned as we went along. So I, you know, we got to write the third one and the third one was the, Nazi, Nazi cyber ape floating head, yeah. You know, robot from what zombie I... army side of Hellboy. That was like, and Lobster Johnson, of course. That really would have been okay. Now we know what we're doing, and it yeah. still was a. You touched on Hellboy's origin, um, but a lot of Lobster Johnson, uh, and then it was an original story too. But it also touched on the whole Hellboy thing, and it was just. I just felt like, yeah, that's the one to do. And they said, oh, we need you to do this Turok Son of Stone first. uh, And then you'll go on to Hellboy. And then in the meantime, the company sold to Stars, And Stars said, oh, we don't want to do our projects with our own money anymore. So because we thought we were going to go in and do like seven movies or something. That would have been so great. I mean, for what I've read about the third one, The Phantom Claw, right? Yeah. Is... uh, it, it just sounds phenomenal. And that was, I, I was going to ask, are we ever going to see it? Or is that ever going to see the light of day in any form? Do you think? I'd say no. I mean, Mike has specifically said, don't ever put that on the net, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just like, you do you, know, do you, those things like I have to search down to make sure I have a copy. Cause I've been through several computers <laughs> since then. So it's like, do I have a file on that? Or would I have to retype that in? Um, I mean, is is the opportunity there to ever return to it, like with a different studio and maybe a different style? So it's 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 a completely unique thing. I mean, who who knows? In yeah. that, let's 
Revolution is the studio is the group that had the um, rights to Hellboy. So they worked with um, Film Roman IDT at the time, now Stars. Um, they were the company who had the rights. If you don't do anything with it at a certain amount of time, this is how I understand it. I never saw contracts. It would revert <laughs> back to um, not. It, you had to do something with it, or the rights would revert back to Revolution. But then uh, Universal did the movie, the second movie, mm-hmm. and now, as I understood it, if the rights wouldn't revert back to Mike, they would actually revert back to Universal. Uh, because they had the movie rights then. But now I, I assume there's the same thing where you don't get to keep the rights forever. After a certain amount of time, if you don't use it, you lose right. it. Um, so I have no idea where things are right now. I would think Mike doesn't even know now. <laughs> and then I have to think that, you know, anybody who is excited about doing an animated Hellboy um, probably has their own ideas of, what they want to do with it, you know? So it's like, it's, I mean, same things happening with DuckTales and, and uh, right now it's being redeveloped. And I, I have to tell fans, I said, you know, if you're a creative person, you're excited from this thing about childhood, you don't necessarily want to bring back the guy who did it. You want to, <laughs> you're excited about it. You want to do it. You want to be the guy. Right. Um, so, you know, it would be cool. But frankly, given the choice, if you say, uh, and you rarely have this kind of choice, but like I have a project I really believe in, Amazon's looking at it, that's a whole super long shot. But it's just something I'd really rather do. And I'd have to say that at this point, I would love to do my, I would love to do that project as opposed to being doing, you know, Hellboy or Darkwing or, or projects that could be super cool, but it's like, but I'm dying to do mine. Yeah. The only th- thing that would get me as excited is, um, oh, here's this other project that allows you to put those same kind of elements together. I mean, the project I want to do takes comedy, adventure, and science fiction and mashes them up in just a cool way that I'd be really excited about doing. Uh, but someone could say, oh, we've got these characters and we want to you know, have them be hilariously funny, but we really want to tell big adventure stories. You know, it would be like, well, I'm, I can be excited about that and yeah. I'm not giving up a character. So, right. you know, yeah. that could be cool. I, I get that though, that you don't want to get stuck in a rut or have to, you know, move. creatively, it could almost feel like you're moving backwards, you know, to something that you did. Well, yeah, years I mean, ago. it's like uh, the common thing. I'm even careful about how many interviews I do that matter about Disney afternoon. Cause I don't want to be the nostalgia guy. Sure. Because I'm still working in the industry right now. Um, but I would love to do, it's like in 20 years, I think I've learned stuff. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I really want to do that. I mean, when I look at an episode of Rescue Rangers, I can barely look at it all. But with Darkwing, I just would love to go in and edit like eight minutes out of every episode. But yeah. that's just like modern storytelling, you know, right. is just has a different pace to it. But plus there's things I let slip in Hellboy because I had to make schedules um, hit deadlines where it's like, ah, I wish it hadn't been done that way. Or I wish we had done more of these stories, you know, things I wanted to do at the time. But you have to do the story. Yeah. 
that someone comes up with, I can't say, yeah, yeah, those are all decent stories, but I want the kind of story that, you know, you have to go <laughs> with what's there. And sometimes it all fits together and you come up with great ones, things like, you know, weird things like Twin Beaks or, you yeah. know, uh, Comic Book Capers is one where I love playing with the medium uh, where you just, or there was one with Splatter Phoenix. Uh, I forgot what the name of it was. I know fans expect me to know everything, but Darkwing <laughs> and Launchpad jumped into paintings to chase Splatter Phoenix, and they changed with the design of the painting. And it's like that's just fun stuff to play with. Yeah, it's cre creatively, you're allowed to you know flex your muscles and do something that you wouldn't normally be able to do. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I guess since you brought it up, are you allowed? Can you talk at all about the uh, your Amazon project? Well, it's a, it's just a pitch. It's basically, it's oldest roots probably are with Goslin, who's my favorite character in Darkwing, because she's the incorrigible kid. Right. And I was saying, what if you take Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes or Spaceman Spiff and um, put him in a science fiction setting? So it's really Spaceman Spiff. But just the idea that incorrigible kid and basically uh, he's on a... Um, I'm debating my head. Do I pitch the actual thing? Yeah. <laughs> um, basically, he's got monsters. It's yeah. it's it's like that he plays with. I mean, actually, if you go to my website, you can. I've posted the older versions of the same thing. Um, but it's like it's not just that he's resurrected these alien protectors of the planet uh, that are supposed to be these giant titans, but instead he gets toddlers. So. Uh -huh he has to raise the future protectors of the planet, uh, which are like animal, vegetable, and mineral, but they're, you know, these, they have incredible power, but they've also got bits of his personality. And, and this guy, as I say, his moral compass is permanently demagnetized. <laughs> uh, it's like, if it wasn't for, they've had a great effect on him. He's had a good effect on them. If it wasn't for them, he might be dictator of the world. But then that is still one of his life goals. Uh, it's that Calvin kind of, you know, why isn't everybody talking about me? Why don't they do things yeah. my way? And he has that. But the show has a whole backstory uh, and villains of like a Lex Luthor type. And it's like, no, this story changes as we go along. And that's actual... Uh, real drama that you can put into it. For instance, uh, there's a story where people are dealing with this ancient artifact that they think this creature, and I just tend to think of the alien from Ridley Scott's alien, right. uh, has killed this prospector. And when they say prospector, these are the guys who look for these ancient artifacts. Um, and so they come to the kid, even though he's seven, He's got these huge monsters, and he seems to pull off this stuff. They say, you have to help us capture the thing. And this all feeds into the kid's ego, so, you know, he's, you know, off to do it. Meanwhile, mom and dad go to the campsite because they're archaeologists. That's why they're on the planet. And mom's fiddling with an artifact, and she gets turned into one of those creatures because it turns out that, no, the thing didn't kill the prospector. He is the prospector. Mm -hmm. that he was mutated in this other form by this ancient thing. Um, well, obviously, you have, you know, who's who type of stuff. Um, my central character does 
capture the monster. He's the hero of the day and all that. But he comes back home and here's an alien sitting at his table. And it's like, she's still mostly mom and dad wants a normal dinner. He wants normal family talk. But imagine sitting down with, you know, the alien. Yeah. You know, it's like spitting acid. <laughs> oh, that was our good plate. You know, <laughs> so, and then that's the night the, the town decides why are we keeping this thing alive? We should kill the thing. So it's basically like an old West paradigm of, of we're going to get the guy out of the jail and we're going to hang him. And Sheriff, you look the other way. Um, the kid saves the prospector, but in the meantime, mom gets loose. So now the town is after mom. So you have real jeopardy of his mother is going to be killed by the townspeople. So there's tension, there's buildup and all of that. But any one gag is, you know, still funny. The characters are still funny. So it's a blend that really, I know what I want, but I have to find it in each individual script. I mean, yeah. in, in my head, if this, you know, you could get sliced into salami slices, you know, by a creature with big claws and then crawl away and reassemble. Now, can <laughs> I be that broad and yet still pull off the jeopardy of you, you really being worried about you know, his mother in mom, Jeopardy, yeah. which was a big concern with Darkwing. Darkwing was the first Disney show to break the fourth wall. This was before, I believe, yeah, I know it was, before Aladdin. Um, so some of the things they I got questioned about was, well, how do you how do you have an act break? You know, how do you have Jeopardy if you've seen a safe fall on him and he survives? <laughs> and I said, because I play scarier music and I, we draw him worried. <laughs> and it really was that simple. It's like somebody, and you know, working with it, I told my writers, I said, look, Darkwing generally has something he has to learn in an episode. Like, I mean, obviously he's egocentric. When he has to, or he's not treating Goslin right, or he's ignoring something, as long as he hasn't learned the lesson, fate works against him. Once he learns the lesson, the anvil tends to fall on the bad guys instead of him, you know? Yeah. So that's how I right. kind of put it into terms that the writers could use in a story. And we still did the thing like, no, this is serious when we say it's serious. And I just want to try pushing that in a show now. So that I'm very excited about doing that sort of thing. And I've always loved science fiction. So that's what I wanted to do after Darkwing. I pitched a science fiction show and instead, um, that's when they wanted to start doing more Disney spinoffs. They had done Aladdin. Mermaid, and that's when they put me on Aladdin. And Aladdin was done by friends of mine, John Musker and Ron Clemens. I used to share an office with Ron. And so I talked to those guys, and it was like we were off and running. And then at least in, because I had started in features, um, that was kind of the end of my getting to pitch an original <laughs> show. And the frustration actually was when I got to Buzz Lightyear, finally a science fiction show, um, I wasn't in charge of story. Uh, my partners were Bob Schooley and Mark McCorkle, who went on to create uh, Kim Possible. Uh, and I realized I really, I'm in animation to be a storyteller. That's yeah. what I want to do. And sometimes I do it with drawing, sometimes I do it with a script, or I do it with a talented crew. Um, but if I'm not part of that process, you know, that's not what, I'm not getting the, what I want out of that. You know, there are stories I want to tell. Yeah, that's, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, that 
that pitch, if if I were in control, <laughs> you, you'd have your show. Cause, you I mean, play the lottery because I'm hoping yeah. somebody's going to come. <laughs> so is that is that in are. is that in with um you know Amazon does that pilot season now or are they looking to expand no, no, beyond no, no. that? This is what happened in in. Even saying it's with Amazon is giving a lot of credit. Well, back a year ago, almost exactly, um, I pitched this idea. Um, and I purposely, this is an idea, one, once upon a time I did a, a version of the Herculoids. And what I did was, I said, okay, let's pitch this to Cartoon Network because they own it. And, and see if we can make a sale that way, kind of pitch them a take on something they already own that'll get them excited. And uh, I looked at just the Herculoids and I said, okay, if I was doing it today, it wouldn't be about this family. It would be about that kid. It's a kid and his monsters, you know? Right. And then I came up with a story with, well, why are mom and dad dressed in, caveman clothes you know, or the kid too how does that work and i came with this idea of oh they crash landed there they were looking for like the lost planet of atlantis as it were um anyway i came up with all this involved stuff we went to cartoon network of course you don't pitch all the involved stuff you pick pitch the basics right but we really didn't have to pitch that much because we had this great piece of artwork by ben caldwell uh and uh they said, oh, you have the rights to the Herculoids? <laughs> we went, wait, we thought you had the rights to the Herculoids. Oh, no. <laughs> because my background was Disney, which grew organically from the center for the most part until they, you know, bought Marvel, bought Star Wars and stuff. Uh, you know, you had the rights to those characters to do, to play with. Um, so the Disney Channel and all of that. But Warner's, they were quite, at one time it used to be, AOL Time Warner. Right. Uh, they had bought these various divisions and they kept them separate. So Warner Brothers had to agree to do a Herculoid show to pitch to Cartoon Network. Oh, so I had to go to Warner's and at the time they were going through a ship, but they weren't interested in the in the show. But I looked at that because I really liked what Ben had done and I liked the ideas I'd come up with. And I realized that easily. 98% of what I actually pitched was from me. It had nothing to do with the Herculoids. So I pulled that out. I came up with the animal, vegetable, mineral thing. And then more and more got changed as I went on. But a year ago, I pitched it to Amazon, but really kept it vague because you want to, you want the network or whoever is doing your show to be part of the process. They certainly demand to be part of the process, but instead of fighting them, you want to hear what their needs are before you've settled into a groove to say, oh, I can work with that need. And and this is going to go a little to the left. <laughs> it's like, or, oh, I was thinking it to the left, yeah. but I get it. We'll, we'll push it more to the right. You know, you're yeah. still early on, so you're not sacrificing anything. And if you feel like you do, that's where you make a stand. And you say, no, this is the essence of the show. Uh so I purposely didn't go into personalities, relationships, how they interacted and all that stuff. Well, I pitched it to Amazon and uh, the person in charge of animation said, well, this is a little thin to pitch upstairs. And I had actually already talked to the people upstairs, but, you know, 
was my point to piss <laughs> off executives. Um, so they said, can you just do like three lines per character and then maybe like three or four story ideas? And then she went on, because what goes through my head is like, well, to do that, I have to now create the show. Right. I have to figure out who these characters are, what their relationships, and especially with stories, unless I just say, oh, here's a story where they shrink, or here's a story where they switch brains, or here's a story where they get frozen in ice, you know, whatever. To pitch a story that's unique to the show, I have to think, it doesn't matter what I write, I have to create the show Bible in my head. Right, sure. Um, and then she went on to say, and if we like something, we kind of go right to script. Um, you know, we don't do a big Bible. And I'm thinking, wow. yeah, because you, you're asking me to do one for free. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, at the time, I had nothing going on. And um, so I got into it, and I instantly fell in love with the thing, with the characters. Now I'm developing. So now, yes, I know I want it to go in this direction. And, and some of the things that they said that Amazon was looking for uh really pushed me even more in certain directions that i got excited about uh but then i got my current job which is ongoing which involved a lot of rewriting so i didn't have time to write yeah but I had a full-time job so i uh kept noodling on this idea i'd sketch the characters and all constantly changing them uh until just recently just a few weeks ago i said i'm gonna write this up and now it's not only what she asked for, it's way more than they asked for. Uh, in fact, my lawyer would have a fit if, wait, she, you showed him this much without being paid? No, it'd be that kind of thing. But my feeling is, Your look, it's a long time. I, I basically did a cover letter that reminded them, hey, remember where we were a year ago? Right. Yeah. Uh, and my feeling was, this is unlike anything you're doing which can either be good right. or bad. <laughs> In other words, you're doing all that stuff because that's what you want to do. Um, you know, but I said, I really love this. Here's yeah. where it is. And they said, this is great. You know, we'll get back to you and see it, read it as soon as possible, which in Hollywood speak to me anytime at all, because it's <laughs> like, okay, this is a bigger document and it's not anything in active development. It's just an idea from outside. They'll get to it um, when they get to it. So we'll see. You know, we'll see how it happens. But um, I hope to do it sometime or it'll end up as a webcomic at least. Yeah. Or a Kickstarter book or who knows. But uh, I really enjoy it. I really want to get into that world. Yeah. That sounds great. I hope I hope something happens with it, even if it is just you take it to Kickstarter to make a book or, a, you know, a, a web well, show look or what something. what Wiseman did with, um, you know, he yep. had development at DreamWorks and then yep. he turned to a line of novels. Yeah. Uh, there's always that sort of thing. In fact, the project I'm working on now is based on these young adult novels, um, which are the Kulapari novels. These are like frog warriors. Uh, and the way the the book is, it's heavily illustrated. It's not a graphic novel. It's a regular like middle-aged novel or middle years novel. Yeah. They have a special term. Uh, but it's heavily illustrated and art directed. And it's like, wow, that's, that's a cool way to do a book, you know, that really feels more like an animated show. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, who knows? Maybe that's a different direction to go. Yeah, that would be great. Um, 
I wanted to bring us all the way back Here, for me, a second. Hold on for a second. Let me okay. let me give you something to edit out because I okay. have to blow my. <laughs> <laughs> and when I blow, I blow seriously. <laughs> all right, now I can eat a cinnamon bear. Even better. <laughs> Okay, now we can start over. Three, two. <laughs> okay, take two. <laughs> um, I just wanted to go all the way back for a second, because um, I know that when you began at Disney, you trained under Eric Larson, who was one of the nine old men. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I just wanted to know, you know, what was it like to begin your career at Disney who was someone, with someone who was already a legend at the time? Well, it was weird. I mean, I... Well, I mean, short answer great at yeah. the same time. you were hired you had to do a personal test i think you were given eight weeks to do a test i actually didn't work as much with eric as i could have or i should have because i knew about animation i wanted to be in animation i had the old bob thomas book of animation that was sold at disneyland this is back in the 60s um and I had the Preston Blair book of animation put out by Walter Foster that every animator yeah. had. Yeah. Um, so I knew a little squash and stretch and a lot of that stuff. So I could dive right in. Whereas some of the guys who came in who were great artists but didn't have the animation background spent a lot more time with Eric. And it's like, I should <laughs> take my stuff in constantly, you know. But I survived the first one. Now I was in a room with Ron Clemens yeah. who had come in six months, five months before me, who went on, of course, to direct Little Mermaid and Treasure Planet, Aladdin and all that. Um, and then about three months after me, Glenn Keane came. And when I first visited, this was like in May of 74, something, April or May, in those training rooms were like John Pomeroy and... Um, Andy Gaskell and, you know, all these guys, by the time I got there, they had all been moved, made animators. Sure. Um, so the place was really shifting from the old school to the new way of doing things. Um, but it was just fantastic, not just because of Eric, but suddenly you got to see, you had a movie all in your room. You could check out a reel of Fantasia. You could actually check out because now you would only you have to put in an order and you get a Xerox copy. But back then, if you ordered a scene from Bill Titla's Night on Bald Mountain, you got the actual paper that he touched, that he is, <laughs> his pencil marks are on, uh, and it was sent to your room. You could be flipping it and studying it just to be wow. part of that. And you have to realize this is before VHS, so yeah. let alone CDs and whatnot or streaming. It's like you could actually call up this animation that – I dimly remember seeing this when I was a kid or, you know, I never saw that one. I've just heard about it, you know, and suddenly we could bring it onto real and, and, you know, see it. It was just fantastic. Hmm. And then the person I was just visiting with Ed Gombert came, who is like head of story on crudes. He did the under the sea sequence, excuse me, in, in uh, little mermaid uh, he came, Randy Cartwright, who has ended up story head of story on Shrek. Um, this was kind of the next group that came in. And then there was a gap, and then they started CalArts. And the first CalArts group was like Henry Selleck, Tim Burton, Brad yeah. Bird, Jerry Reese, John Musker. <laughs> and this Crazy. was a fantastic place to be. And, if, <laughs> you know, 
you see photos of the time, you say, well, let me see, he made a $300 movie and he made a $400 million movie. And, you know, it's just a fantastic group. And it's like, oh, yeah, he went and founded Pixar and he was head yeah. of story on Pixar. And, you know, it's just a whole different, different place. And that was happening in the time before Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg. So the place didn't, we were doing, I came in on Rescuers and then it was Fox and Hound and still run by the, the guys who had been there with Walt. And then they got, they gave some new people a chance, but they were new old people who had been there for years and years. Um, they were like too afraid to give it to like yeah. the young punks as it were. <laughs> um, and the Don Bluth was still there and, and Gary Goldman, like I say, and John Pomeroy, who left in the middle of Fox and Hound and, you know, took his people with him. And uh, I, meanwhile, got a chance to work in Imagineering and develop rides for Epcot uh, and ended up working in like an 8 by 12 room with Ward Kimball. Right. Speaking of nine old men, I was with yeah. Ward for a good nine months solid. And it was just the two of us and him telling me stories of growing up because that's what we were doing we were doing the history of transportation and he could he told me yeah we used to build go-karts like this and wrap the rope around it like this way so you could actually steer with the steering wheel and um and that was amazing you know uh yeah that was actually you're you're going right along because i was going to ask you if that was yeah. world of motion that you worked on at epcot and i um, believe I think that was the title given to it because that was they now have taken it off. Out. Yeah, it's not there anymore. It's now a thrill yeah. ride. And then yeah. I went from that working with Tony Baxter and Barry Braverman. We did the original Imagination Pavilion. Wow. Uh, so working with Tony is a legend, you know, as a chief designer of Disneyland, uh, had the title at, at a certain time. Yeah. And he always loved the parks and what he brought to it and a different type of entertainment. Um and how had things the story had to work in three dimensions and even though people would talk about oh here's the story as if you see this and see this and it's like no you're in a car people are just looking all over the place saying, yeah. look at that look at that it's all got to work and it's this immersive environment which was frustrating with working on the ride with uh ward it was it was vignettes. It was the history of transportation. So it's like, mm -hmm. oh, here's a gag with three guys. Here's the guy who's presenting the wheel to the king. Mm -hmm. And here's a guy trying to sell him a triangle. And here's a guy trying to sell yeah. him a square. And those things aren't working out. You know, and then we have, oh, here's a train being robbed. So there were gags within that. But if you turned around, there was just a black wall. <laughs> so to me, the delight of Pirates of the Caribbean or Haunted Mansion is you leave whatever weather and whatever time of day outside literally and you are in a whole new world which could be foggy or night or suddenly the town is on fire or ghosts are coming out of the graves you know that's the immersive experience that was so fantastic you know yeah yeah is the the world of motion i i remember it i i mean it hasn't been there i don't i don't remember what what year it closed but i remember it vividly and uh, it's actually on YouTube. I was watching it today just to, to remind myself. And it brought back a whole lot of memories. Um, I mean, that was at the time when Epcot, I mean, that was one of the first Epcot attractions, I believe. I think Epcot opened, and that was one of the uh, the first attractions. I think when Epcot opened, it, those were what I was working at the time. Everything opened at once. Yeah. But um, 
we used to joke about the energy pavilion that the cars literally held a 99 people. <laughs> and we said, what are the regulations about that? How big can a vehicle be before you need a restroom on it? Um, and the guys from Kodak who did the Imagination Pavilion, they looked at it and they said, that's a great ride if you want to take your community on a ride. <laughs> the whole town could come together. Let's go on a ride. You know? <laughs> that was something in the, the, in the decision of Epcot, that they, a decision they made early on is to have one sponsor per pavilion. Right. Okay. As opposed to this is the transportation area. Yeah. This little ride is going to be brought to you by such and such company. And this bigger ride is brought to you by something else. So you had several, it would be better to have several sponsors and it would open it up to a whole bunch of different companies. As it was, they could only go to, you know, the top 10 companies of the, yeah. I guess more companies that were rich enough who could basically <laughs> blow $35 million in, you know, late seventies dollars, um, <laughs> to basically kind of a public relations move. Yeah. Like, right. You're going to hit more eyeballs if you actually use that money on commercials kind of. Yeah. Thing. But it was, it was a direct descendant of the, uh, like the 1964 world's fair, which is, which was exactly that. It had all the exactly. pavilions with one sponsor each and Walt, you know, fell in love with that idea and had great success there. So that's sort of, that's how Epcot was born. Yeah. Yeah. And of it's course, not... Walt wanted to build an actual city. Right. We right. found paperwork that, well, the thing about if you build a city, you want to build it so that it's, this is how you approach future problems. Um, Brad Bird's Tomorrowland, notwithstanding. <laughs> uh, but a lot of them was just, we saw little memos like, oh, wait, some of these problems are just going to be legislated away. It's like yeah. there's not going to be a homeless problem in Epcot. Right. <laughs> if you get to a certain age, guess what? You're not going to live there anymore. <laughs> so what they did was basically give a glimpse of the future. The only other pavilion I worked with uh, was the Space Pavilion, which you notice is not there because there was no single company who could finance such a thing. And if they had that much money, they'd be putting it into rockets. Yeah. Um, and almost every ride ended up in space. Kind of how they did it. <laughs> uh, however, that's when I got to meet George Lucas. And, and uh, uh, that was when he brought, it was kind of a consulting trade-off. He came, I mean, he came to consult on anything they wanted to show him. <laughs> And have his name as a consultant, obviously. And then he brought his plans for this place he was going to build with kind of Victorian era, kind of like Main Street, which was Skywalker Ranch. Right. So I right. remember him spreading out the plans. Wow. And the next group came in and they were the engineers talking about drainage and this and that and how you would do such and such. So that kind of puts the date, you know, back then. Mm -hmm. um, but that was fun. I got to meet him. We had a... That must have been, well, certainly, obviously, after Star Wars, but I think um, it must have been before Empire. And we went to for lunch in the conference room, and excuse me, I'm going to lower things down. Um, I happened to sit directly across from George, and we're chatting, and everybody's chatting about this and that, and I just said, 
I'm sorry, all my friends in animation will kill me if I don't ask you about Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no, no, go ahead. And he told me there were nine movies. Yeah. Um, that used to be wow. one big story. And, and uh, the only two things that I remember is he said there was nine movies. And for a while, he denied that. Uh, the other thing he said was nobody's going to like the first three movies. Really? Wow. Yes, because he said they're more political. They're about, I don't know that he said they're about trade negotiations, but he said they were more political stories. Wow. Um, and I just was, you know, taking it in. Now, in retrospect, it's like, it's kind of like, wait a minute, if you're going, no matter what the subject matter, if you're going into into it saying nobody's going to like these movies, <laughs> You created this universe. You can tell a different story. <laughs> you know, you can do, you don't have to have trade negotiations and all that. Yeah. But whatever, it was like the universe was already real in his head. It was right. like this history that had happened. So it was a matter about telling the story. So to me, that's, no, that's an insight into his creative process. Yeah. Uh, much like, this show I have in my head, it's like, no, no, don't take out that element. That's just, yeah, I could tell it without it, but why would I? That's part of it. That's the history of the planet. Uh, and however, I think the reason why people, and I know there's people who love them, but younger people uh, who don't <laughs> like the prequels is not because of the trade pre negotiation per se. It's everything else. Everything else. <laughs> <laughs> I have, to, I have to say, I've not gone back and, and some of them I've actually only seen once. I've only seen episode three once. Yeah, I, I, I saw them. I saw them. I am on three. I couldn't even tell you what happened in which. Yeah. Um, and that's what's so great about the recent trailer, of course, is somehow mm -hmm. everybody watches that and it's like. We forget the prequels. Completely different, but it feels the exact same. Yeah. Way. Oh, yeah. So. I was in I was in San Francisco recently and I got to I was at, at Lucasfilm. Uh, we went up for a blogging event and they showed us the trailer on the big theater that they have in there. And oh, cool! Everybody in there was mega Star Wars fans, so it was like, you know, we were just all, oh, you know what I mean? Like we're all drooling. <laughs> that's I mean that's fantastic. Yeah, that's blew great. us away. Fantastic. Yeah, we're really we're pretty excited about the new movie. I would say. <laughs> yeah, I know. I saw somebody posted. You know, that, I don't know, I was really burned by the first three. And I said, these are, and this is some guy <laughs> I didn't even know, and it was on a comment thread that I didn't, you know, wasn't anybody started by someone I didn't know. But I just said, this is a whole different creative team. Yeah. Right? From the top to the bottom, it has no, it may suck, but why assume that based on right. these three movies yeah. done by an entirely different creative team? Exactly. So, you know, all I know is that judging by what I'm looking at, looks pretty damn cool. It so looks, yeah. it looks I'm amazing. Why not, why not enjoy that anticipation? Yeah, I was cautiously optimistic until a few days ago when that the right. second teaser came out, and then I said, you know what? I am full on excited yeah. at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the yeah, I saw a great uh, kind of political cartoon that was on the net of. A guy and his monitors. Oh God, those prequels! I don't know. I've been burned once. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go get it over with and watch it. And he yeah. like clicks, and then the next thing, he's a little kid with all his action figures next to him. Yeah. It's like, yeah, <laughs> so true. It. It's so true. They did. They nailed it. They could not. It could not have been better as a teaser to get everybody excited again.
Yeah, I, it wasn't until the third time I watched it that I realized there were two crashed spaceships in that first shot. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, I saw the giant thing, and then it wasn't until the third time I went, "Oh my God, there's an X-wing in the fourth. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even notice that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to go back and watch it now. <laughs> the X-Wing in the foreground buried a little bit. Okay. So we're going to cut the show for this week right here. That's the end of part one. Next week, come on back for part two. This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. I'm Justin Connors. My host is co-host is Jamie Green. We are on Twitter at the GBB Podcast. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash GBB show. Have a great week. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad. The intro music on our show is provided by Key Theory. Go to kitheory.com.